Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for bookish, nerdy, lonely, alienated, suicidal, fucked up people. It's a great place to uh, reach those people on the internet. If you want to reach those people on the internet, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, Paris Review, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, the list goes on. You can advertise on the full network or you can pick the sites you want piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. For more information, check out litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's very good to be with you. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'm very pleased to be in the new home studio, finally. This is it. This is the first episode in the new home studio. This is the first episode of the second five years of the Other People Podcast. Uh, The last episode, which I sort of uh, put together in a slapdash last minute manner was just me talking into the microphone, celebrating five years of this podcast. I never thought I would ever say that, uh, the podcast was five years old, but there I was. And now we're moving into the next five years. I don't know. I don't know how to take that. I don't know how to process that, but, uh, we're in a new place. I've got new microphones. I've got a new mixing board. If I sound any different, that's because, uh, I've got new gear, got better gear and uh, that should hopefully help the show sound better. And I've got a great guest today, Rich Ferguson. Uh, my buddy, Rich, I've known him for a long time. He's the poetry editor at the nervous breakdown and he has written a novel. It is his debut novel. It is called New Jersey me. It's available now from rare bird books. Uh, that's the publishing company. The imprint is a barnacle book and uh, New Jersey me available now in trade paperback where books are sold. So Great to talk to Rich. I want to thank everybody out there who sent me uh, letters, emails regarding uh, five years of the show. I got a lot of nice notes in the aftermath of the last episode. Uh, I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. And otherwise, you know, 
I've got nothing prepared. What's been going on? I watched the debate as much as I could tolerate last night. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, 2016, the presidency. I find it very depressing. I also found it, I, I guess I found it a little bit surprising how little interest I had in watching the debate. Like the theater of it, the pyrotechnics of it, all of it, it just, I'm completely worn out. I don't care. I know that I'm voting for Hillary. Donald Trump is a uh, buffoon. And I think that the damage is already done. Just the fact that he has normalized insanity in our politics, has normalized, uh, you know, a kind of hatred, bigotry, stupidity, ignorance, all of it. He's mainstreamed it. It's done. And the only thing that could possibly uh, stitch that wound up or reverse the effects of him is if he gets his ass kicked in the election in, in a uh, massive landslide, which it doesn't look like is going to happen. It's not enough for him to, to just lose. He's got to lose extraordinarily, historically badly, I think. If it's close, then somebody else will say, well, maybe next time, you know. They'll go for the crazy person and that'll, you know, it empowers, uh, and inspires crazy people to run for office. That's not a good thing. So I, I think I, I think I, you know, my feelings are pretty normal for a lot of us. Just exhaustion. Just get it the fuck over with. I want him to get blown out in the general and I want him to go away. I know that he won't, but that's what I want. And uh, if he, if somehow he wins, uh, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, I, I don't know what will happen. I really don't know what will happen. I think he's that bad. I think he's that dangerous. I think that, uh, it would be a disaster for the country and the world that would exceed the disaster of, uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, which was a catastrophe, you know, a, ma a major disaster. So that's what I think. I don't mean to be doom and gloom. That's what's been going on. That's what's in the ether. That's what people are talking about. That's what I've been thinking about a little bit, I guess. And, uh, otherwise I have been working. I'm writing my book. I'm about to finish it, or at least a significant draft of it. And I'm, uh, I've been putting this room together, trying to get all of this stuff sorted. It's a big project. Like anytime you get into home renovation, uh, it always takes longer than you think. There's always a lot of moving parts and you know, it becomes just, uh, just a snowball. There's a snowball effect. That's what I'm trying to say. These things get out of hand, but finally, you know, we're getting toward the, you know, to the end here. I can see the uh, vision realized it's a cool space and I'm glad to have it. I'm very lucky to have it and I'm going to be uh, excited to host writers in here and to keep the show going for the next five years. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it. The full catastrophe 
and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So having said that, uh, it's great to have Rich Ferguson here uh, as the first guest in this new space to christen it. Uh, His book, his novel, his debut novel is called New Jersey Me. It's available now from a barnacle book. Here he is, folks. This is Rich Ferguson. My wife and I adopted a newborn baby daughter, Evelyn. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, and which is a huge deal for me, uh, seeing as how that was something I had kind of put off and put off and put off in my life, and finally all signs were pointing towards embrace fatherhood. Well, look, dude, you're uh, publishing your debut novel. Publishing my debut baby. Your baby, your debut child. <laughs> yes. You just moved into a new place? Yes, moved from Hollywood to Alhambra, which is... Formerly the home of Phil Spector. I know. You know what? I I keep telling my wife, you know, I want to explore the area, and that's the first place I want to try to find. So you've got after... Because, like, people need to know that you are a poet. Um, You have been uh, touring, publishing, performing Mm -hmm. as a poet for decades. For years, yeah. Long time. Yeah. So that's sort of like your... um, that's sort of like your main mode of operation. And then you busted out and, and wrote a novel over a long period over of time. Over a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, we've known each other for years. And when I first, you know, came to the nervous breakdown, you know, as, and, as a poet. But even then I was working on the novel, piecing it together, originally trying to write it as a novel in stories. And, you know, I would work for months on some of those stories only to throw them away either because I had become a better writer over the course of time and I had sort of outgrown some of the stories or just some of the stories just didn't fit anymore. And it was a, and then there were a few years where I just put the novel away because I, I just frustrated. Yeah. Frustrated, hit a wall, didn't know where to go with it. Well, and the thing too, it's funny. I, I hear you say that you started it out as a novel and stories. I feel like a lot of novels start out as novels and stories. Is it because like you've got these different disparate scenes or events in your life that you thought, well, I can maybe spin this into fiction and we'll try to weave them together into like a tapestry. And then it also makes it feel uh, easier to attack it if you bust it into those little pieces. That's a really, that's a really good uh, question. I, I think there's a, a bit of those things. I think there were some, Like I would, well, you know, the whole novel originally started as a spoken word piece that that was called a Terry Candy Baby and Me about this guy that gets kidnapped by this guy and being held uh, for ransom for pot, you know, and the guy, the narrator of the stories being like carted around in this like army surplus duffel bag being taken to a strip club and all this stuff and... I, after I wrote the piece, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. And I actually kind of like this guy's voice. I think I want to explore it more. And so it was one of those things, as you said, where I would sort of like, ooh, I wonder what his voice would sound like 
telling a story like this or telling a story like this. So, yeah, so the novel sort of came in these kind of vignettes, scenarios, stories like that. And then, you know, there was like Jesus's son, you know, where to me that's the perfect sort of, I mean, it's not a novel in stories per se, but they are definitely sort of like linked stories. And I was just like, by the way, we sound like we're in prison right now. I don't know if you're hearing You can't I, hear it in the headphones. I can't hear it in the headphones. But <laughs> Rich and I are on yeah, the... We, we're, in the we're in Rich's cell at uh, L.A. County. Forgot I'm, bu- to, I'm bunk mates with <laughs> Phil Spector. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention. He was Phil Spector's accomplice. Now he's in prison with him. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, so it's like... And what you're saying, too, is that your novel was born out of a poem. Exactly. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, because I feel like people stumble into... Um, the, you know, the protagonist or the title or the, you know, the entire narrative arc, or maybe just a piece of it a lot of times, uh, by accident, you know, yeah. it's kind of like a little bit of, uh, you know, it's like luck, but also hard work. You know, you were, you were making your art, you were showing up yeah, and then suddenly you were on this breadcrumb trail. Exactly. And then, you know, how long did it take you from that moment to this moment? Oh goodness. I would say a good 12 years or so. God, yeah. At and least. Are you ever going to do it again? You know, it's funny you should say that. I, I wonder. I mean, I would love to write another novel. I, there was actually a first, first novel that I wrote prior to this one that, uh, that I actually put into a deeper drawer than the drawer that I had put this novel into for a while. And uh, I actually tried pulling that novel out after I had, finished New Jersey me and was just like, I you, wonder if I can go back to that novel. And I looked at it and I was just like, you can't go home again. Can't go home again. I mean, I, every once in a while, maybe, but like there might be like a little nugget or something in there that you could, you could, yeah. you know, expand upon. But I have the same thing. I have stacks of pages in a drawer that it's like pleasant to think there's gold in there. In yeah. there. <laughs> there's really not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was sort of like a novel of a couple good ideas. Cause it was like, a novel loosely based on my time of living in San Francisco and playing in a band. And there was a period where I sort of broke out of narrative and went into sort of this tour diary part of the novel where each member of the band sort of talks to the reader from their point of view, talking about the tour and middle postmodern. Yeah. And that was sort of like my favorite part of the book. So those voices, well, maybe, maybe there's a spinoff, you know, one of the characters. Yeah. But uh, I, I wonder if, if I've, I mean, it would be nice to think I have another novel in me. I don't know right at the moment. I'm sort of, for the moment, back to writing poetry again. You're like, this is a lot more fun. Writing poetry, you can write something in like a get shorter a, span of time and get it up on stage. Get it and, up on stage. You know, and then, yeah. uh, like, here's a question for you, because you are so performative as a poet. For those people listening who have not seen Rich perform, uh, it's something. Like, you know, you're a true performer. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a lot of writers like get up on the microphone to do a reading and it's a, you know, it's, it's a performance of a kind, right? but you're really a performer and, a, and you have a, mu- a musical background. Yeah. You've played in bands. Uh-huh. Uh, you still do. Oh yeah. 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 So, you know, you kind of know, I think how to be on stage better than most. Right. And I think you, uh, write poetry that is meant to be performed. Yeah. Uh, it's also meant to be read, but it's, it's really, I think best experienced performatively. Yeah. That's my, that's my favorite way. I mean, it's, I guess you could do it both ways, but it just seems to come fully to life when you're doing it live in front of a group. And so my question, and you hear this a lot of times with comedians is that they'll work out material on stage. 
you know, they'll yeah. break jokes on stage. Like does a poem, like does a poem for you ever get better on stage? Do you ever find a line or tweak something in the midst of a, of a performance? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've done a number of things while in the midst of a performance. I've edited pieces in my head and jumped ahead. Like if there are poems where I feel like a certain part of it might lag a little bit, I've been able to kind of jump ahead to a certain section and kind of edit in my head as I perform. I've also perfected lines where I've written it one way, but it just happens to come out of my mouth another way when I do it live. And I'm like, ooh, I like that way better. And then I'll go back and change it on the page. And there have been other pieces that just fall flat and will be just like, <laughs> won't perform that one again. Well, yeah, you know, you know. Yeah. You know whether or not it works. You know how an audience responds. And yeah. like, that's something that's super valuable. I think, you know, in a perfect world, even with a novel, you, I guess you have your test readers. I mean, that's basically what it is. You know, you send it out to a few friends or an editor or an mm -hmm. agent or all of the above, and they give you feedback. But um, there's also something to be said for like a live audience. Yeah. Like, because you're actually there watching or, you know, either performing it and, and getting the feedback yep. in, in real time. Yeah. You know, you know if it works or not. Yeah. I mean, do poems ever surprise you? Oh, absolutely. There'll be poems where I think uh, this one is going to bomb with this audience and it goes over really well. And then there are poems where I think, man, this one's going to kill and it'll fall flat. There have also been pieces where in my head I've sort of a had kind of a set in my head going into a particular space thinking like this is the set I'm going to do and I'll get to the venue and it's like a totally different crowd than I expected or whatever and you know sometimes I'll try a piece and you know it might be like on the edgier side or something and it's a you know like it's this sort of crowd of like older women or something or whatever and i'm thinking like man they're gonna skewer me for this piece and people at this nursing home are gonna hate exactly <laughs> people at this nursing home are gonna hate this piece and and they're you know i'll have people come up to me after the show the people that i would least expect and they're like i love that piece you know yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. just like you can just never you, like, ne you never yeah, know you can't prejudge you, you can't prejudge an audience no so, okay, so how did you get into all of this? I mean, a life in the arts, and, and you have a varied career. You know, yeah. you, you are not the first writer that I've spoken with who, um, you know, writes fiction, writes poetry, and, and is a musician. Yeah. But there aren't a lot of them, but there are some, uh, there's some polymaths out there. Like, right. like let's, let's start at the beginning. Like, you're from Jersey. Yeah. Your book is called New Jersey Me. New Jersey Me, yeah. So, born and raised. Well, no, actually, I lived in North Carolina until I was about 12 and then moved up to Jersey. And I, I think, you know, living in North Carolina as a, as a young boy and stuff, I really became enchanted by, like, folklore and stuff and ghost stories. And here, like, the oral tradition of telling stories, like... I just saw that firsthand. Where were you? In Charlotte, North... Well, actually, in Charlotte, where all the, the shit's going down these all days. Right. In fact, my mom still lives there. Um, so, in Charlotte, and, you know, just hearing stories orally, really getting into that, and then up in Jersey, and 
getting into writing and sort of doing more of that in high school and stuff. And I, and I, I wanted to like tell stories. I took a fiction class when I was at Rutgers and at the very end, like the last week of the semester, the, uh, fiction teacher did like sort of the ghetto week of poetry. Like there was one sliver week she reserved for poetry. And then at the end of the course, she just sort of looked at me and she said, you're a much better poet than you are a fiction writer, <laughs> <laughs> which sort of crushed me, oh, you know, yeah. for fiction for a while. And, um, so then after Rutgers moved out to just sort of pack my drums, packed everything and came out to California and, actually came to, here to L.A. first and thought I was going to give it a go, go to uh, Percussion Institute of Technology here for a year. actually got a job the first day here in L.A., like to be a waiter, uh, left that place. The guy was like, go home, get changed, get a haircut, come back to work tonight. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Where was this? It was like some restaurant in Westwood or something. Okay. And I was basically driving back to my friend's place where I was staying to do all those things. And an 18-wheeler hit a UPS truck, slammed into my car. I still had my drums and everything in my car. Totaled my drum set. Just oh my God. everything was screwed. And I was just basically like, I have no business being here in L.A. and basically stayed long enough to get the insurance money and then moved up to San Francisco, which way got me. You know, I was just like deep into poetry there. San Francisco is a town where you can get deep into poetry. Yeah. In a way that most cities do not accommodate such things. Yeah, it's really true. And I was able to like, you know, just really fall into a group of musicians, you know, just in a, in a very relaxed and natural way, not having to like do the whole thing that, you know, a lot of musicians have to do here where you have to put out ads and all kinds of craziness. I just basically started going to open mics and doing poetry. And I had these bongos that I'd strap around my waist and, you know, just basically had this, you know, folk singer guy, this guy, David Bryan, come up to me and was like, hey, you know, you need a guitar player? And I was like, you need a drummer? And, you know, it was kind of like, then it was a duo. And, and then, how old are you at this point? It was like 24. That's when you can do that it was, shit. Yeah, when you can do that shit. And then so... Nowadays, if you show up with a bunch of bongos and they're like, hey, like people are like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh-oh, it's the bongo player. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it, it, it just worked. And then we found a bass player. And then, you know, we were like able to like you know, record and tour the Canada's states in Canada a couple of times. And it was just us piling into a van. And best. it's just like, it was just so easy to do. And it's uh, the only time in your life when you can really do that and have it be super fun. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's great that you did that. I know it's, it was really just, it was, I mean, it's going to sound sort of cliche, but it was really magical and just, it was sort of like a snapshot of a period of my life. It was just like, wow. It set you on your course. Yeah. And it just set me on my way and just, you know, and then I eventually worked my way back to LA and kind of had a better attitude about LA and things started clicking. I fell in with a band that got a song on MTV's House of Style. I just started meeting people that seem genuine and you know you know what it's like you just kind of chip away at and it you over find the your, years you find your people 
you find your people. It's exactly. not as, but it's not as easy, I think, in L.A. Um, I mean, it can be, but I think Los Angeles can be, especially for somebody just here, it can be kind of a tougher nut to crack. It's overwhelming. It's like, where is everybody? And yeah. it's a big town. That's why I, I always envy gay people in L.A. <laughs> Because like, I want to hear where you're going with this. Well, no, because like it's like West Hollywood. It's contained. Right. It's like you know where your people are. It's like oh, there's they're right here. Right. In a small geographical area, whereas yeah. like the rest of Los Angeles is such a big sprawl. Yeah. That it's like where's the where are the poets who like also play music. Right. You know, they could be anywhere. Yeah. It's not like they're all on like a few blocks. You know. Yeah. Not, well, that, not you, that every gay person lives in West Hollywood. Exactly. You know what I mean. Yeah. But actually, we were talking about something earlier, and you mentioned something interesting earlier. It's like talking about how certain groups of people will congregate to certain areas of Los Angeles. It's like, how did this even start? Like, how did you even end up here? How did you know to come here? <laughs> Why are you all here? Right. <laughs> you know, but people find their community some way, somehow. I think it's a, a little bit of it is um, not being too intimidated. A little bit of it is uh, having patience. Yeah. You know, you got to spend the time, you know, and you got to be willing to sort of plug away at it. And you also have to be willing to endure I think logistical inconvenience, mm -hmm. you know, getting across town to hang out with people and take the bus or take the train or fight the traffic or whatever it is, you know, yeah. just to kind of, uh, congregate. Yeah. I mean, some people come to LA and even, you know, admittedly when I first came to LA, I sort of had in my head, I'll give it a year. It's just like, and some people will come out and say, yeah, I'll give LA a year. It's like, man, you are not even scratching the surface <laughs> after a year no, here. No, no. I mean, I always, because I, I moved around a little bit when I was growing up, and I would say as an outgrowth of that experience, uh, even to this day, I'll sometimes say, like, you got to give a place a year. You can't judge a place till you've been there a year. But I think with a big place that's so varied, it probably makes sense that it would take more time. Mm -hmm. You know, whether or not you fit or whether or not you're going to have friends or... I think it's, you know, it's easy to move to someplace new and to have like a knee jerk reaction yeah. or to want to kind of like sum it up after 60 days. Like, well, right. got to figure it out. You know? like, yeah. It's not the case. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I find, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface having been here 16 years. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I have no idea like half of what goes on in this city or where the neighborhoods are. Or, right. You know. Well, we, another thing we were talking about, like. Waze, the wonder of, you know, Waze driving app, how it's like introducing me to areas of LA that's right. like, wow, never drove this street before. Well, it, like a, it's like a crowdsourced app. So I think it's good that more people use it. But then there's also situations where like you don't want too many people using it because then they're going to fuck up your secret route. Exactly. So I don't know if we should make this public. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> you just screwed everything up, Rich. <laughs> um, so, okay. So do you come from art uh, like an artistic no. family? No, not you're, at all. You're the weirdo in the family? Yeah. So, yeah. Like, what, like give, give me some family history. Okay. Yeah. Gladly. And this is sort of uh, a story that I think will fit in perfectly to this. Uh, my dad, a salesman, and actually I graduated from Rutger, Rutgers with a degree in advertising and public relations. And so basically after I got out of college, my dad was sort of expecting me to, you know, go to New York or do something kind of get Madison like, Avenue. Yeah. Madison Avenue, whatever. And I was, I was like, dad, I'm going to move to California and play music. And that just, that was just, that did not work. And, and for quite a few years, we just were not on very good speaking terms. And it really wasn't until I did this first band with a group that I was with in uh, San Francisco Blue Movie. And we like, you know, recorded a record and I sent it to my dad and he actually had something he could hold in his hand. And then it like clicked for him. He sort of got it. And he 
and then when we went on tour and we played Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, he came out to see us and he and his wife were actually like dancing to our music and and man, I got to tell you, it just like made my heart sing. It just brought me such joy to like just have that kind of reconciliation that like, okay, my dad gets it now. And he even um, he sees you. He sees. In fact, I'm you can't radio listeners. You can't see it, but I'm actually yeah, just he's, getting he's goosebumps. Got goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, recounting this story. But like when we came back off tour. My dad called me one morning and he sounded all sheepish and he was like, yeah, can I uh, talk to you for a little while? And I was thinking like, oh, no, something's wrong with him. And he basically just said, you know, I, I wish I had the guts to do what I really wanted to do when I was your age, because I think my life would be a lot different now. And, you know, on one hand, it was really great to hear because we had just fought for years on another hand you know on another level it was you know sad because like here's a guy who for one reason or another because he you know because he and my mom ha had my brother and me when they were really young so you know he, he couldn't do things he wanted and so in that way how was, young what's that how young the, uh, my dad was like actually my age when i was playing music like 24 and my mom was like you know 21 and um that generation though that's when they did it it's yeah yeah that's crazy i mean when i <laughs> <laughs> I think of like what I was doing when I was 24 I and thinking, yeah. yeah, doing Different mushrooms times. and, you know, playing raves in Oakland, you know, with <laughs> naked day glow painted girls. And it was just like, you're yeah, not having a kid that's now. What you're supposed to be doing when you're 24. Yeah, exactly. My God. Okay. But it, okay. So that's cool though. Your dad came around. Oh, and, he totally and, did. And I mean, relatively quickly, right? Yeah. Because you were playing this, this show in Hoboken, you were still in your 20s. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Like, it's not like this was like a two-decade estrangement. No, 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 no. And then he no, finally... I mean, you know, we, we were going, going at it for a number of years, but once we released that record and he sort of had it, he kind of got it pretty fast. And, and he, there was such a great turnaround that he, because he was sort of in, in sales and could travel the Northeast, there was a period of time where, where my band, we were touring the, North, touring the Northeast, and he arranged his sales schedule to follow up, basically follow us on tour. And he put, you know, he used his expense account to put us up in hotel rooms, yeah. and he would come to our shows. And I remember there was this one show we played in New London, Connecticut, and... They basically like paid us in beer, like you know, okay, you guys like it was something ridiculous, like a case of beer or two cases of beer, and it was like February, and we were sick as dogs, and we're like, we can't drink this beer, and we've got to drive, and we just started asking beer questions to the audience and just basically giving it away and we had to play three sets that night. And after the first set, my dad was like, I want to ask a beer question. I want to ask a beer question. <laughs> I was like, sure, dad. Great. And so when we started the second set, my, I was like, tell you what, just wait to the side of the stage and I'll have you come up. And uh, the band was, you know, all in their places. And I went to the mic and I said, you know, being a musician, one of the great things is you get to travel, see, you know, go to different cities, meet people that you wouldn't normally meet otherwise. You know, in fact, we were just in New York and, you know, I met one of my just lifetime literary heroes and we hit it off so well that, in fact, he started, you know, he's, he's here with us on tour now. And ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you William S. Burroughs. And it was a college <laughs> crowd. <laughs> they went 
nuts. <laughs> and like, I was like, Dad, come. And he like, you know, comes out on stage and the, the audience roar went from like, woo, to like the one guy that doesn't know what William Burroughs looks like. And my bandmates are like, that's what you got to do with your dad, though. Yeah. Set him up. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what about your mom? Where's she at? Where's she at on all this? Uh, You know, she's always supported. She's always been a great supporter of just me dreaming. And so I've always had her in my corner. She's always been great with that and still is. And, you know, I... She just received her copy of the book in the mail, and she's like, "Oh, Richard, I'm so proud of you." You know, and it's like, "Thanks, mom." She always has been. She always has been. Now, yeah. what, what is like if your dad uh, had this heart to heart with you over the phone? It was over the phone, right? uh-huh. where he says, "I wish I would have, yeah, you know, had a chance to sort of go out and do the courageous thing when I was a young man, yeah, and really pursue whatever it was that he wanted to pursue." Did he ever tell you what it was? What he what he would have done? Well, he majored in forestry in college so i think it would have basically just like you know to be a far, you know a forest ranger or something out and just in the like woods. out in the woods of north carolina or jersey or somewhere yeah he went to school in iowa so somewhere somewhere where, where did he go in iowa uh iowa state okay where, yeah. where are your people from i mean you seem like you're all over the map kind right? of all over the map you know i uh, i was born in Des Moines, Iowa, then moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then we moved up to Jersey, and I learned very quickly that I had to lose my southern accent as fast as possible, because it was around the time of fifth grade, and I would be like, hey, y'all, want to go play ball out on the playground? They were like, you talk funny, and I would just like get the crap kicked out of me continuously. I was like, man, I got to shake this southern accent as soon as possible. So now people are like, well, you don't talk like you're from Jersey, and, and you don't really talk like you're from the south but it's just kind of you get a hybrid yeah but you know sometimes when i go back to like north carolina or something i'll kind of fall into i have a thing where if i'm on the phone with like a customer service representative with a southern accent i I always try to pick the state (laughs) because there are just like charlotte has a very like charlotte it has a very distinct i have a bunch of friends from uh, college who are all from Charlotte, just randomly. Oh, interesting. And so I know that accent yeah. when I hear it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll know Alabama. I can pick out Louisiana easy. Interesting. Um, but I like to try to do that because, I mean, they really are distinct. And then, of course, Jersey's a strong dialect as well. Oh, yeah. Do you think maybe having access to those, you know, the distinct voices and the different voices... It's got to have some like formative effect on you in terms of language, in terms of writing. Oh yeah, you know, like it, 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 I guess if you're, I guess what I'm driving at is that if you're going from like you know Indiana to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. it's not that much different, right? But Charlotte, North Carolina, to where where were you in Jersey? Uh, a little town called Forked River, which is on the Jersey Shore, right around like Seaside Heights. Like, is this Bruce Springsteen country? Yeah, because it's just below Asbury. So, yeah. So, did you grow up uh, loving Bruce Springsteen? Well, you know, it's funny because the cover of the novel is uh, designed after Springsteen's Greetings from Asbury Park, which was, was like the first Springsteen record I ever owned. But I actually had a complete aversion to Springsteen when I lived there because, you know, there were so many people that were like, Bruce yeah. and all that. And I was just like, eh, enough yeah. of this Bruce already. Yeah. And it actually wasn't until I moved to California and was playing in that band in San Francisco where... 
the guitar player in the group was like, oh, dude, I got to turn you on to Springsteen, man. And he played like, you know, Nebraska and Greetings from Asbury Park. And I was like, oh, my God, all the stuff that I was missing. He's this, actually pretty this, good. Yeah. I was like, this guy's pretty good. He's this good. Bruce guy's pretty good. He's got a book out. <laughs> yes. He'll be, he'll be in here next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bruce, let's get Bruce into the garage. I'm sure he's got uh, you know plenty of time for this. But um, it's funny, you know, you go into, um, a, you know, you're, you're living in a place where regionally it's sort of expected of you to be a raving lunatic fan of a particular artist. Like I kind of grew up that way with uh, John Mellencamp. Right. Like yes. in Indiana, like sure. it's like he's like the the guy. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of what maybe you know. Do they feel about? Do they feel this way about Bob Dylan in like northern Minnesota or Prince? I guess in Minneapolis. Oh, in Minneapolis, totally. You know, like they become so identified with the place that they're from. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty hard to. I, I I find that over time it's pretty hard to resist. A because there's usually a reason why they've gotten to that place. Yeah. It's not because they suck. Right. Like it might not be your cup of tea, but they don't suck. They don't suck. Like John Mellencamp doesn't suck. Prince no. obviously doesn't suck. No. Bob Dylan. Bruce Springsteen, right. like these guys become, or like REM with Athens, Georgia. Yeah, you know? precisely. Yeah. So, you know, they earn their spot there. And then, you know, I think you have to be pretty hard hearted or close minded not to see the beauty in it at a certain point. Yeah. You know, because it really does speak to that place Yeah, in a really uh, meaningful way. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, I mean, I, th- I, I would love to to be in a band or a writer or somebody that, you know, like a Springsteen that becomes, you know, an icon, a symbol of like Jersey or a certain section of Jersey or a certain feeling of Jersey or, you know, an REM that came up at a certain time in Athens where there was just this, you know, uh, sort of this spirit of indie kind of like do it yourself, you know, rock or something and, and but a lot of bands seem to kind of they kind of were at the the um, nucleus of a lot of it was like a movement it was like a little musical movement i think of seattle too in the 90s well, there you go there's yeah like they, they become these kind of locusts for you know whatever period of time and I, who knows why same thing we were talking about earlier with why do certain pockets of the city suddenly like have this culture spring up yeah or this particular uh group of people you know yeah. like, where, how do they find the place? The same thing. Like, how do the artists find each other in this spot? And then suddenly it explodes. Like, it makes me wonder, is it a few key players whose force of nature is so strong that others are drawn to them? Or is it bigger than that? Is it the, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, yeah. I, uh, wow, that's a really good question. I, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would have to say that it, it might start with that. They're probably like just some key players that are either just have a certain kind of magnetic personality or they're just really good at what they do and they just start drawing people in and they sort of, they either of their own will or people imposing it upon them, they sort of become that voice for that time, that area. And you know, and like John Lennon or whatever, you know, I mean. Yeah, think about the Beatles. Yeah. Those four, I, those four guys growing up within like whatever a stone's throw of each other. Yeah, and then like, you know, John Lennon and people like, you know, camping out at his, in front of his house. And he, you know, and him just saying, look, I don't want to be your, like, whatever you think I am. Like, I don't want to be your voice of like, you know. 
It's just like, I'm just trying, you know, and there, Bob, it's, Bob Dylan resisted that too, where yeah. like you become elevated or people really start to look at you, um, for things that go well beyond music. Uh-huh. And it's just like, that's a heavy burden to put on somebody, oh, right? You know, it seems like the kind of thing that, uh, a, a really ambitious artist with all the egoic things that go along with it would, would love to have. Oh yeah. But I think when you look at examples of artists to whom it has happened, it almost always destroys them or comes close to destroying them. Yeah. It's a big cross to bear. Yeah. It, it makes you feel like you're not a human. I think it's isolating. Yeah. And it makes you feel like, well, people don't even see me. I, that's what I really think it is. And I think there's a great irony in being an artist who works really hard to be seen and heard and then gets seen and heard in a, in a massive way. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that it ultimately makes them invisible. Like the true them. Wow. Do you know? I mean, I feel, yeah. like, I feel like that happens. I feel like Kurt Cobain felt a lot of that isolation. Absolutely. Obviously the Beatles. Um, when you think about a band or an artist and a place and you think about Los Angeles where you've made your home for a long time, mm-hmm. how long you been here? Oh, goodness. Over, over 20 years now. I mean, it's funny to think that Los Angeles, a place when I first came here, I wanted nothing more than, you know, after that car accident i was just like welcome to la yeah welcome to la and get me the hell out of here and i'm going to san francisco it's funny to think that i've now lived here almost twice as many years as i've ever lived anywhere in my life yeah me too yeah i've lived here longer than i've lived anywhere so i guess this is home and um you know we talk about uh, an artist becoming really identified with a place Mm -hmm. and then earlier we also spoke about how los angeles is such a hard city to get to know because it's so big and so varied. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, how do you become an artist who's super identified with LA? I'm trying to think of a band where you're like, that's the LA band. Well, I, it's funny. I, I don't, I mean, bands that I think of now, when I think of iconic LA bands are like, either no longer together or like the lead singer just like imploded or I mean like you know an iconic one would be the doors there we go you that's know? a band that, that was I... like a real quintessential LA band I agree. I love the doors oh yeah for that reason though because when I when I listen to that music it reminds me of a time I never lived in in LA mm-hmm. <laughs> which is easy to idealize mm-hmm. but it's it's a hundred percent associated in, with that period like oh the, yeah the, the golden age of the sunset strip yep and the whiskey and Venice, yep, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know Morrison really had his lyrical finger. Just you know, his spirit was just channeling what was going on at that time. And uh, that was, a, but that was a really man. That was a white hot flame. It just went quick. Yeah, you know? went really really quickly. Yeah. And like Janis Joplin, well, she's an interesting one because she was also San Francisco. It's funny because she ended up here, but. When I think of her, I sometimes identify her more with that kind of San Francisco vibe. Me but, too. Me too. She yeah. was a hippie girl. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I think of Steely Dan. Oh. <laughs> I have very vivid kind of funny imagery. Yeah. But like Steely Dan in the 70s just seemed like the party music of that time. Yeah. I have no idea. It seems like it probably was, at least sometimes. Oh, yeah. And there's an interesting thing about, like, when I think of Steely Dan now that we're sort of talking about it. There is something very cool and almost kind of like we're sort of cooler than you and and we're just sort of like we're cool to the point where you could 
like party to us and stuff, but we're kind of like just a little out we're of like, your grasp. We're beyond that. Yeah. We, we did this last year, but now you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's almost, I mean, in a way that's kind of just, that is sort of a little like life here in LA. Like it's cool and everything, but there are just certain things that are kind of just a little too cool for you and a little too much out of your reach. Drives me crazy. Yeah. Because there's a lot that I can bitch about with this town, you know, like I, I have my complaints, but I also have my love. I think people feel that way no matter where you live. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep telling myself. Cause it's like, it's easy to fall into that trap of, well, there's maybe there's a better place that's easier to live in. I used to think that for years, but then you just, at, it's at a certain point, it's like, you know what you take, you take it and you yeah. make the best of it. There's a lot to like about oh. being here. There's a reason why there's 10 million people. Here. <laughs> there's there's a reason why it, it takes so long to get from uh, yeah. West Hollywood to Silver Lake. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. So you, speaking of like, uh, you know, musicians flaming out and just, you know, self-destructing, mm-hmm. did you ever uh, like go through periods where you were going too hard? Yeah. You seem like you're pretty, you got your shit together, but maybe like you, sometimes people, uh, get into that mode because they've learned their lesson the hard way. Did you have to learn your lesson the hard way? Yeah, I would say a little bit. I mean, you know, when I was in San Francisco and, and, uh, I mean, I don't think I was ever really reckless. I just, that's not really my personality. But I guess for me, there was a period where, you know, doing a little too much acid or mushrooms or something. And, you know, there were one or two points where it was just like, did I take a hit of acid one too many? You know, (laughs) is there just no coming back from this hit? And uh, so there were some things like that, but... You know, it just, do people really, I mean, I guess some, there's, there are some cases of people taking too much and like really mangling their wiring, Yeah, but it's, you can't overdose on this stuff. Like the, if you're going to go too hard, the hallucinogens seem like the ones to use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd rather you do that than be like really deep into like crystal math. Or, oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. See, you chose wisely, Rich. I did. Ch- you're yes. a wise man. Thank you, Brad. You fried your motherboard with acid. Like, <laughs> like a good man should. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but you never, you never were like, you know, oh man, I gotta, I gotta get sober. Or I gotta. No, thank like goodness. That. Never had any uh, problems like that. I've had many, many friends and sadly, you know, a dear musician friend here in LA that I played with for years and we, you know, performed as a duo called Fuzzy Doodah, where he played, you know, Hella Bitch and Lap Steel, and I did Spoken Word, and we played South by Southwest a couple times, and we actually, the two of us actually performed, you know, with Patti Smith and Bob Holman in New York City, but, you know, he drank himself to death, and no matter how many times, you know, I tried to intervene or other bandmates or friends or, you know, girlfriends or whatever tried to intervene. That poor guy was just on a collision course. There was just no stopping Wait, like him. cirrhosis of the liver? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. How old was he? Because I remember you wrote a poem about him, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he what was... What was his name? Jet. Jet, right. Yeah, Jet Soto. In fact, just we- weirdly, within the last couple of weeks, out of the blue, I had someone write me and just like through my website or something and say, did you play with my uncle, you know, Jet Soto? And it was just like, wow. And I actually have a picture of him in my desk drawer of the two of us playing together. And I promptly pulled out the picture, took a photo of it and emailed it to the guy. And I was like, hell yeah, I played with him. I I still think of that guy to this day, but he was, you know, in his early to mid thirties or something. Fuck. Yeah. It sucks when somebody has got a problem like that and they just don't want to get help. Yeah. 
you know, it's like, there's not much anybody can do for a person who's in that mode, who has that illness or whatever, unless they want, yeah. and you can't enforce it. Oh know? no. And I think ra- he saw it rationally and he realized rationally, yeah, I need help. But man, there were just some demons or something underlying things he was dealing with that just would not let him stop. Huh. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, that's how pe- like, that's how some people I think deal with in, in to greater and lesser extents. Uh huh. That's how some people deal with their pain, like their suffering, their medicate. Yeah. Some people functionally. Like, yeah. So like, I know that you're, you seem like a spiritual guy. Yeah. Well, you know, we both, we both do yoga and stuff. And, you know, actually when I started doing yoga, um, that actually made me want to like destroy you know harm myself less to do less harm to well, just you, you can't do it if you're smoking you can't yeah. do it if you're hungover. yeah like so it's like if you like what i always joke about or the way that i joke about it i'm always like it's like it's like a bong hit without the paranoia <laughs> it's true like you do a class and like if it's a good class and you really ring yourself out like you feel fucking great yeah but it's clean it's like clear you know and, oh yeah um I don't know. Like that's a kind of a, a crude way of putting it, but no, it's absolutely a perfect way of putting it. And it's absolutely true. And it was just like, who needs to like, yeah, get high, get wasted or whatever after something like this. Cause yeah, you got it. And then, but then, yeah, it also sort of like builds into itself like uh, self care because you can't actually do the thing right. if you're not taking care of yourself. Yep. So that you got, when did you get started on that train? I would shoot. I've been, I would say I've probably been doing it off and on for about 15 to 20 years now. Yeah. That's about me too. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm like, what? I was 20, I was like 20 years old. So I'm 20 years. Yeah. So I had to, I mean, there were periods of time where I had to stop because there were periods where I actually kind of like mess myself up doing yoga. So I would have to like stop for a few years or a couple years or something, or just go to really light. Just doing it too much. Yeah, and, and doing just doing super some, hardcore. yeah, doing some of those super hardcore classes and just messing up a shoulder or my lower back, and it's just like, right. I mean, yoga is great, but yeah, when you go to some of those hardcore classes, if you don't do those poses correctly, and some people like, or just if you if you just try to do everything when your body's not up to it, because yeah. you think you you know they're calling it out, you've got to, yeah. you know. But it's uh, it's funny. Like, like, do you remember why you went? Yeah, I totally remember. I had this girlfriend here in LA and she was like, you know, you want to go to yoga with me? You know, and, and, you know, I was just so crazy about her. I was like, sure, I'll do it. You know, I'll do anything with you. And she's like, yeah, my teacher's like, you know, what would he have been at the time? Like, she was like, my teacher's 75 years old. Was it Frank? Frank White. Frank yeah. White. She's yeah. like, my teacher's 75 years old, you know? And I was thinking in my head, like, yeah, all we're going to do is like sit cross-legged on the floor and chant or something. I'll be like, yeah. And it's like, yeah, I'll totally go to your yoga class. And it was so hardcore. And I was in way over my head. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was amazing. And even after, you know, even after that relationship ended with that, with that, woman i was just like i just kept going to his class and just was like you know i'm over my head now i want to date this guy yeah <laughs> fuck this girl <laughs> yeah, exactly i want to date this guy frank man frank was funny though man he would get and this was a this frank white for those listening just like an la yoga teacher institution who like became a teacher like when he was like what in his late 60s or something yeah. he was a smoker i mean he just took terrible care of himself 
Yeah, and then he, but then he flipped it around. And oh yeah, became like a you know a very popular teacher. Oh yeah, and he would have people like, I mean, I would go into classes and like Diane Keaton would be there, um, Jennifer Beals, and you know Frank would often start the class where he would have all his students like hold hands and gather in a circle in that big room at the Center for Yoga. And, uh, and you know, there were times where I was, like, standing next to Jennifer Beals and holding her hand. She the flash dance girl? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I was just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And there was one class where he had us really close to one another, and we were, like, doing these poses, like, sort of lifting a leg and tilting a leg or whatever. And I was next to Diane Keaton, and our feet bumped together. And I was just like... Oh my God, I'm never going to watch that foot again. It's a very LA moment. Yeah. It's easy to mock yoga. Like I, cause I, I love, I, I started doing yoga cause I have a bad lower back. Right. Same now, here. Like, yeah. So years and years ago, it's like, I'll try this. I'm in fucking agony. Like I can't move. Yeah. And then you start to get hooked on it. And then it's like, Oh, I love doing this. And like, it's helping me creatively. It's helping me in all, like every facet of my life. Like yep. I just really took to it. But then there's a part of me that's also like reticent about talking about it because people out there are like, Oh my God. <laughs> Fucking like my wife always teases me. She's like, uh-huh. she's like, if you know, if I would have known that you were like a yoga bro, like this wouldn't be happening. <laughs> this would not, yeah. But I'm like, hey, like don't knock it until yeah. you've, you know, until you've got, uh, you know, your back out of uh, alignment and you go in there and you kind of dance out. It's a different, it's true. You know, it's a different beast. But, um, you know, from a spiritual perspective, uh, do you did you grow up in a religious household? Catholic. Okay, me too. Yeah. Did you and are you like, are you? Not practicing Catholic or... No, no. um, Yeah, sort of was Catholic for, you know, until I was like 12 or 13 and then... Is Ferguson Irish? Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then uh, just sort of drifted away from the church for one reason or another and then uh, just for years didn't... um, you know, just didn't go to church. I would consider myself a spiritual person, but just didn't go to church. And my wife now... Did your parents get on your case? About... Church? Yeah. About, like, you have to go to church kind of thing? Right. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, my dad really didn't go. My mom mostly went, because my mom actually was a nun in the convent for, like, when she was, like, 18 or 19 or something. And then she actually left the convent to marry my dad. Yeah, I have aunts that did. I have like multiple aunts who were nuns. Wow. Yeah. And my uncle's a priest. Holy cow. So I'm from like a deep, you know, deep South Catholic family. But yeah. um, What do you, what do you, what do you consider yourself now? Do you consider yourself something? Um, well, you know, my, my, my wife likes to attend church. So I, so I, we go to church together and I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I've had my, you know, I've, I've sort of been Catholic. I've sort of just been kind of, I've sort of dabbled in Buddhism. And, you know, I've sort of been periods where I just sort of kind of wasn't really anything. And so I, I think I'm just sort of open right now. I'm just sort of an open vessel. Free and just, agent. What's that? You're a free I'm agent. I'm a free agent, there, yeah. If there are any gurus or cult leaders out there who are looking for a new <laughs> member... Oh, no. Rich is available. Yeah. On Tinder. But you, what's, the yeah, Tinder? Exactly. what's the Tinder for, uh, you know, spiritual seekers? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Swipe left if, uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 really, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's really interesting it, going back to ter- church now after having not gone for years. I actually, 
I don't know. There's something very sort of grounding about it that that I that kind of harkens back to my old days of going to church uh, when I was was younger and and things. Um, there's something. I mean, something. There is something about tradition. Uh-huh. There is something about these particular songs and these particular chants and this particular kind of environment going back through the centuries that like there's some meaning to be found in that. And then. Yeah. I think also coming at it as an adult with uh, a better critical mind. I think when you're a kid, you're taking everything at face value. Yeah. It can be terrifying. Yeah, That's absolutely. That's how it felt to me. But I mean, now you go back after not being in for a while, especially, and you kind of come in cold and it brings back memories and you're yeah. all, you also sort of know when to listen and when to be like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Checking them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's interesting that, I mean, I... You know, when you hear, you know, a certain religion or someone say, you know, this is the way, this is the only way, whether it's, you know, whether it's whatever, you know, Buddhism, Catholicism, you know, you know, just whatever. And but it's funny because I actually see so many, so many messages, so many similar message, maybe messages just kind of tweaked slightly differently. It's just like, why are you guys kind of? arguing with each other, you actually kind of say a lot of the same things, but just in slightly different terms. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that seems to be, it seems like there's really, everything's pointing in the same direction at its best. Yeah. If we could separate, if we could separate the wheat from the chaff and get rid of a lot of the, um, less helpful dogma, it would probably be, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say one truth, but there'd be some, some, core principles that we could all agree on exactly like the golden rule exactly. <laughs> just let's simplify this shit you know? exactly um okay so now you're a new father yes congratulations thank again. you uh you have a novel out yes you have a new home yes here at uh, los angeles county uh, yes in los angeles county in, in phil specter's cell exactly <laughs> here in yeah um you're working on some poetry yep which it seems like a logical thing to do in the wake of a novel like like a nice breather like do, do some poetry yeah it's got to feel good yeah it does because the novel was a lot of work and you know it's interesting when i was working on the novel and just slogging away at it i would just look at people like you and, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan Everson and just, you know, all these people that like in the T and B crowd and other people, and by the way, we should tell people you've been the poetry editor at the nervous breakdown since, since its inception. Yeah. You've been with it for, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. And, and 10 years. Yeah. And just happy to do so. And, but I would look at novelists like you and the others and just be like, Oh man, I just wish I could do that. I just, I just, you know, so it it hasn't been something that's come as easy to me as it might be to a writer that just feels more comfortable in that way of speaking and that sort of voice. And it's it's been hard for me, but I'm glad I stuck with it. You, well, know? you know, it's like it's 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 really hard to do. I think for everybody who does it, I think maybe some people, you know, obviously some people have the gift or whatever, and it's it's a little bit easier for them. But uh, something that Lauren Groff said. And I, for, I guess it must have been in an interview I read with her. I've talked to her on this show, but she, um, she wrote the novel Fates and Furies. Mm-hmm. Um, she's written you know, another one called, uh, what was it called, Acadia. But great novelist. And she said something that I want to say one of her uh, sports coaches. I think she, I want to say she rode crew. I'm totally putting this together mm-hmm. you know, from memory. But 
something like that. She had like a, a, a coach in college. I think she rode crew in college and he said something to the effect and I'm paraphrasing that. Yeah, you can, you can be good at anything if you're willing to do it slowly enough. <laughs> nice. You know, and I feel that way about writing fiction a lot. Like if you, you can be really good at it, you can get it right. But the question is, are you willing to sit there with it long enough to get it right? Yeah. Are you willing to go through the grind of moving that slowly? Yeah. There's something painful about how long it takes. Oh yeah. And I'll tell you, and this is, this is the truth. One of the things that got me through the whole thing. And I, and I had these words on a, on a, uh, like an index card right by my computer were actually words that you once told me in a conversation when I was just telling oh, you like how hard this was for me. And you once said to me, refuse to be denied or broken. And I just was like, yes. And see, there's another goosebump moment. <laughs> yeah. You said that to me. And I, I was like, and I just promptly, after I got off the phone with you, put I think, those I think words that was, on I think it. That was the liquor talking. Yeah, that was the liquor talking. Yeah, <laughs> I well, then the liquor was speaking magic because I put those words on a on an index card, and I had that right by my computer the whole time I was writing that book. And I, when it would get shitty, I would just look at those words, refuse to be denied, or, or and really with with anything sort of creatively, just refuse to be denied or broken. Yeah, I mean, because it can be easy to fall into despair. Yeah. Like this isn't going to happen. This is a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. I can't do this. Uh, it's eating up too much of my time. Like the, like those voices are relentless in your head. Yeah. So it does. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, uh, melodramatic, but not really. Right. You kind of have to have that attitude. Like, um, you have to have a discipline, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, cause you teach as well. Yeah. What grade do you teach? Fifth. You teach fifth grade and you've done that for all, 15 years for 15 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a big job. Yeah. It's a big job. That's a big drain on your energy. Yep. So, and then to write a novel, I mean, it, it's no wonder it took you 12 years. You were doing that all the while teaching. Oh yeah, totally. And you have your summers, right? Or do you, yeah. or do you have like, is it a year round school, but you have like little pockets or what it was it, both. both. The, the, I've been at the school so long now that, that it's gone through periods where it was like, it would, I would have the little pockets off during the year and now it's more of the sort of summer off thing, but, and who knows what it'll be next year. But yeah, I would basically, it would be like, I would, during the week, I would, when I was teaching, I would get very little to sometimes no writing done during the week, just either being dog ass tired or whatever. And then just hauling butt on the weekend, just trying to write as much as I could. And then, you know, the next week doing it again. But like when I had my breaks, I was very hardwired for discipline. And a lot of that I, I learned just being a musician and just rehearsing my butt off for shows and stuff. So that was a really good foundation for me to like know that just being a musician, knowing that you had to just work and work and work and show up and do your thing. And that was really laying a strong foundation for me as a writer to just like, man, you just got to sit your butt down and do the work. If you show up for the muse, the muse shows up for you. Yeah. I remember like going to this drummer, like symposium thing. And there was this famous drummer who was doing a workshop and someone in the audience asked like, how do you do that? And he was just like practice, yeah. you know, just hours and hours of practice. Well, no, like I was reading a book. It was like some self-helpy kind of book about, um, I forget what it was about, but it, it, the, the, one of the chapters was about musicians and like how they separate themselves, mm -hmm. like how the really, the, the ones who actually do it yeah. separate themselves from like the person who just kind of has a guitar and noodles. Right. And it's like this diligent 
maniacal practice with attention to detail and, yeah. will, and a willingness to just repetitively sit there until they get it right. Yeah. But they also have a certain efficiency of approach. Mm-hmm. It's not all over the map. They have a structure to it. Like, yeah, you know, it, like it made, it made a lot of sense to me, yeah. you know, how somebody who is an absolute maestro on whatever instrument, you know, somebody who's truly elite, mm-hmm. like how do they get there versus yeah. somebody who, you know, has the same instrument might even practice for, you know, close to the same amount of time. But it's like, what's the separation? It was fascinating to think about, you know, and, um, it's funny to think of the parallel, you know, in either case, you're still sitting in a chair basically, you know, with your instrument, with your keyboard, with your pen, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so what's next? Good question. You don't Uh, know. Yeah. Just enjoy your baby and and write some poems. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm open right now, you know, and I keep. Yeah. He's, he's really spiritually open. He's creatively open. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Swipe left. If, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of time to be open when you're bunkmates with Phil Spector. It's just right. a lot of time just, to think. It's just, yeah. So, and I want to ask you about your hat. Oh, yes. We have to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. The, it's if, if sort you, of if trademark. You know, yeah. If you know Rich Ferguson, if you've seen Rich Ferguson perform, if you've seen Rich Ferguson anywhere. Yeah. At a con- I've had people spot me across the room at like crowded ass concerts and like, I saw your hat. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes. You always wear it. Yeah, 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 yeah. When did it, when did the hat, like, why do you always wear it, first of all? Well, I, well, okay, I, I got, uh, yeah, I've had the hat for, shoot, about 15 to 20 years, and it was really kind of a, I was in San Francisco, I got it in North Beach, it was kind of just this, I was killing time in North Beach, saw the hat in a, store and I was like oh that's kind of interesting tried it on and and it was something that I just sort of would only just wear from time to time and it was like oh yeah kind of funky hat and then um you know my friend Jet the lap steel player passed away and I had bought the I got I had bought the hat around you know when we were still playing together and it, this might sound kind of silly but it, it sort of the hat started to kind of uh in, contain certain memories and certain things, and it was almost like it sort of soaked up these certain memories and moments in my life that it almost became, I don't want to say necessarily a security blanket, but it definitely became this... It's your th- whoopee. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so... It also protects you. You have lovely skin. You're protecting yourself in the, there desert, you go. In the desert climate. There you go. But this hat is crazy. I mean, it's been... I mean, you see the stitching there. It's like Franken hat now. It's been run over by a car. It's just been through all kinds of crazy stuff. What's and it made of? Is that straw? It's or? like straw. It's like a, a basket weave, I think it's called. Okay. Yeah. And I've tried to look around. I've, I've looked in different places thinking like, well, this hat's going to go one day. I've got to like you know, find its, uh, successor, successor. And I just have not yet found anything hard to find a good hat. It's a good hat. It's a good hat. It works with you. And it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's total. I wouldn't know how to deal with you without the hat. I I've had people like, do you teach in it? No, 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 no. You don't. No. Okay. No. And, uh, and I don't have sex in it and I don't (laughs) shower with it and I don't do yoga in it. And yeah, there are things I definitely don't do with the hat, but there are definitely a lot of things I guess I do do with the hat. But, um, I've literally had people come up to me and, uh, say they like, 
didn't recognize me at first without the hat or something. Yeah. That's kind of cool too, though. It, if, it you is... need, if you need to go incognito. Exactly. You don't want to be noticed at the concert. Just take your hat off. <laughs> just take the damn hat You'll off. blend right in. <laughs> You're a nobody. You're a nobody, yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, man. Well, congratulations on Thank all you. that has happened for you. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Uh, the book, the baby, yeah, the hat, the poems. yeah, the hat, everything. And I and I have to say, man, it, it's such an honor to uh, to to be here with you on this show because you know, ever since you've started doing this show, and this is true, that I've just thought like I need to do something noteworthy enough to sit across from brad listy on this show so i'm so happy that that i actually have stuck with something long enough to actually be here with you it sounds kind of corny but again it's another goosebump moment because it's true refuse to be broken or denied refuse to be denied or broken i still don't believe i said that i said that did damn what was i on (laughs) (laughs) it's good talking to you you too brad thank you All right, guys, there you go. That is Rich Ferguson. His novel is called New Jersey Me. It's available now from Rare Bird Books slash A Barnacle Book. You can find Rich online. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at Versa Ferguson. That's V-E-R-S-I Ferguson. He's also on Facebook, so track him down over there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the other people with Brad Listy app. This show has its own official app. It's free. Best way to listen. Go get it. Uh, you can listen to the, you know, the most recent 50 episodes are free. If you want to get at the deep archives, you can sign up for a premium account right there within the app. It's 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. Um, what else? Oh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com. And then, uh, beyond that, you know, I'm going to try not to get too deep into the weeds on politics in the uh, weeks to come with the election barreling towards its conclusion that can't come soon enough provided that it, it is the conclusion that I want and not the conclusion that I fear in a dry panic at three in the morning I don't like uh, am I being melodramatic I mean it's a terrifying prospect that we could elect somebody like Donald Trump I can't even believe this is happening It's like a fucking nightmare. It's also very embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. Dad, stop grinding on people. (laughs) I think that's actually a good analogy. You know, from the, uh, like, third party, from the the, uh, foreign country perspective. Foreigners looking. America as the world's daddy. I think I was onto something there. I think that's some good shit. I'm very tired. It's after, it's almost midnight. I, the internet at my house is down. There's all sorts of fucking technical, technical difficulties, technological difficulties, technical difficulties and technological difficulties. Like getting this room, uh, to where it is now, getting into this place, moving the logistics of it, all the logistical bullshit that's been going on in my life for the past, uh, several weeks. It's coming to a close, but it seems like it's the end of a horror movie. And, uh, you know, you think that, like, uh, Freddy's dead or Jason is dead or whatever. And then, uh, you know, that last approach, you walk towards him to check to see it, and he jumps up. You know what I'm saying? That's what it feels like. So now we're dealing with internet bullshit. Please remember that uh, Montaigne learned how to read 
and speak Latin before he learned French and that Turgenev coined the word nihilism. That's all for now. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to Rich Ferguson. Go get his novel, New Jersey Me. Support a debut novelist. And, uh... (laughs) 